Good day and welcome back to our podcast, Current Controversies and Consensus in UTI. I am Dr. Pamela Kushner, a family physician, and I'm joined again by Dr. Sonali Advani, an infectious disease specialist and researcher. Hi again, everyone. Thank you for having me again, Pam. It's really nice to be here. Wonderful to have you. Today, we'd like to pivot our series towards the patient burden that occurs in all UTI infections of all considerations in UTI management. Engaging with the patient may be one of the most challenging aspects. After all, you can give good care as a clinician and still have failed treatment outcomes due to adherence issues and the other external factors that affect us. Before we dive in though, let's revisit the patient cases we've discussed in our previous episodes to see just how important integrating the patient perspective into managing uncomplicated UTI really is. Sonali, would you like to begin, please? Of course, Pam. Our first case returns from episode one. She is a 67-year-old female with no prior history of UTI who presented to the clinic with symptoms of dysuria, frequency, and urgency increasing in intensity over a two-week period. This patient was a good example to look at when asking the question, when should you order a urine culture? The clinician had ordered a urine culture for their patient and prescribed a nitrofuran antibiotic, but the patient had minimal improvement in symptoms. The urine culture grew greater than 100,000 colony-forming units of E. coli sensitive to nitrofuran antibiotics and the clinician assured her to continue taking the nitrofuran antibiotic. Eventually, the patient was switched to a fluoroquinolone, still does not feel better, and the clinician performs a pelvic exam, which reveals atrophic vaginitis. I'd like to propose a question to you and the audience, Sonali, to think about. In what ways can the patient's perspective influence the outcome of treatment in this case? Great question. I'd like to touch on a new case here to bring more perspective. A 69-year-old woman living in a long-term care facility with a history of fall, low-grade fever, and dizziness, who has no dysuria, no urgency, no frequency, or suprapubic pain or flank pain, presents to the hospital. Her urine analysis reveals pyuria and a positive nitrite. She was started on a cephalosporin antibiotic due to concern for a UTI, and a urine culture was ordered, which also grew greater than 100,000 CFU of E. coli. At this point, the treating clinician was confident about the UTI diagnosis and continued the antibiotic. However, the patient's symptoms of dizziness worsened. She developed nausea and vomiting and eventually had a CT scan of her brain, which revealed that she had a cerebellar stroke. That's a very interesting and a very unfortunate case, Sonali. Again, can you explain why we should not treat a positive urine culture in this elderly patient with a low-grade fever? Could this not be a case of UTI and cerebellar stroke? That is a great question, Dr. Krishner. For a long time, we believed that urine was sterile, but there's increasing evidence now that suggests that our bladder has a microbiome and that urine is not sterile. A common term used to define bladder colonization is asymptomatic bacteriuria, which is defined as the presence of one or more species of bacteria growing in the urine at greater than 100,000 colony-forming units per ml, irrespective of the presence of pyuria in the absence of signs or symptoms referable to the urinary tract. 
Older adults in particular are at high risk for asymptomatic bacteriuria and pyuria, or positive urine analysis parameters like white blood cells. The incidence is as high as 48% in older adults. Additionally, in our patient's case, anchoring to those positive urine analysis parameters and that positive urine culture in the absence of genitourinary symptoms led to a delay in the diagnosis of a more serious condition in this case, which was the cerebellar stroke. So I would encourage clinicians out there to focus on performing a patient history and exam and not just focusing on laboratory values when diagnosing UTIs. In addition, this patient was exposed to unnecessary antibiotics, which increased her risk for drug adverse events, future resistant isolates, and C. difficile infections. This is such important information, Sonali, especially the fact that there's presence of pyuria on UA and bacteria on urine cultures in the absence of UTI-specific signs or symptoms. But you would still recommend not to treat with antibiotics in this patient case. What about positive nitrite on your analysis? Would that change whether or not you treat with antibiotics? I'm so glad you asked this question, Pam. Presence of nitrite on urine analysis simply suggests that you have gram-negative organisms in the urine. It does not rule in or rule out a UTI. This is a very common misconception, especially when people think the absence of nitrites means that your patient does not have a UTI. So if your patient has genitourinary symptoms like dysuria, urgency, frequency, and a negative nitrite, they can still have a UTI from a gram-positive organism like Enterococcus or Staphylococcus saprophyticus. This is very important eye-opening information that clinicians need to pay attention to. But there are some exceptions, I'm sure. What about a patient who's in shock or is altered? Yes, absolutely. When a patient is in shock or altered with SIRS criteria, if the clinician has concern for ascending infection like pyelonephritis or in some special populations such as pregnant women or neutropenic patients, we do go ahead and treat with antibiotics in those cases, um, even for patients with positive urine cultures, because we have to follow these patients very closely, but then we look for opportunities to de-escalate if suspicion for UTI is low. So when we highlight fluoroquinolone toxicity and how they should be reserved, it's important to mitigate any adverse effects when possible, and the length of therapy is one of those avenues through which we can address this. So you may recall episode two, where we discussed the duration of treatment, which presents another aspect of clinician expectations. Gigi, our patient, was suffering from recurrent UTIs and was frustrated that her prevention methods were not working effectively. Sonali, we touched on therapy durations in our last episode. If Gigi still complains about symptoms, what do the guidelines say about managing these symptoms with regards to therapy durations? So duration of therapy depends on the antibiotic choice, but in general, if this is a recurrent episode of uncomplicated UTI, then you would treat this for the same duration as uncomplicated UTI, appropriately tailoring the necessary treatment to the shortest effective duration, three to seven days depending on the antibiotic choice. Generally, all antibiotics have risks. As such, stewardship should be exercised to balance symptom resolution with reduction in risk of recurrence. There is increasing evidence 
that short duration of treatment is as effective as longer durations and associated with a lower risk of adverse events, antibiotic resistance, and antibiotic-associated side effects. Thank you, Sonali. Let's switch gears here and talk about another aspect of the patient in uncomplicated UTI care, and that's going to be her emotional and overall well-being. The impacts of uncomplicated UTI and overall well-being are often underestimated, especially for patients who suffer from recurrent UTI. Something we have not addressed is the impact these experiences have on patients. In addition to the discomfort of a UTI, patients can miss work, lose sleep, and have difficulties performing normal daily tasks due to the frequency of infection. That's correct, Pam. Comorbidities and infections can have a profound impact on well-being, and UTI is no exception. Do we have any insights in this regard? Well, according to the data, the activities of daily living most affected by UTI include sleep, exercise, housework, and sexual intercourse. In 2004, Colgan et al. found that among patients with a UTI, half of the respondents reported a change in sexual activity lasting more than a week. In another study by Thompson et al., when compared to a matching healthy population, women reported higher absenteeism and loss of productivity at work. UTI has also been shown to affect overall well-being negatively based on symptom impact. But what is more surprising are the consequences associated with clinician interaction. What would be the consequences of this, Pam? Well, let's review some recent literature to answer that question, Sonali. A recently published 2022 study by Gregorian and colleagues examined the difficulties encountered by patients when interacting with clinicians concerning uncomplicated UTI management. They found one major source of stress and anxiety was sourced to the difficulty in obtaining an immediate appointment as well as spending time in the office. We often forget how difficult access impacts our patients even before the visit. In a separate study by Scott et al., women also reported that clinicians in general failed to validate the detrimental effects of recurrent UTI on relationships, work, finances, and emotional well-being. Patients even mentioned that they feel ignored by their clinicians. This is an important study highlighting the impact of UTIs on overall quality of life, something we do not routinely inquire about during our clinic visit, but should incorporate moving forward. Yes, and what is even more surprising to me, as discovered by Gregorian and colleagues, patients with these persistent symptoms and infections begin to often develop a mistrust of clinicians. So what are we missing as clinicians from the patient perspective? While clinicians may be able to provide education on what a UTI is and how to prevent them, as well as partake in addressing misinformation and myths, clinicians may seem to underestimate the baseline knowledge that many women have on UTI. This knowledge may come from many sources, but most notably, it seems to originate from previous experiences with collateral damage. This would include inappropriate antibiotic prescriptions and the difficulties that the patient had faced because of antibiotic resistance. Pam, if you recall, our first patient case, FJ, had minimal improvement in symptoms. Later, the urine culture resulted in greater than 100,000 pan-sensitive E. coli and the clinician assured her to continue taking the nitrofuran antibiotic. Eventually, 
After the end of therapy, the clinician performed a pelvic exam and then prescribed vaginal estrogen. Our recurrent case, Gigi, felt frustrated in the lack of effectiveness of preventative therapy, namely prophylactic antibiotics. This patient surely experienced frustration when her symptoms didn't resolve and when she suffered from recurrent episodes. This patient presents the clinician with a unique opportunity for a more holistic approach with a discussion centered on shared decision-making. Great points, Pam. And I feel that this is a point that's lost in many patient-clinician interactions, possibly due to time constraints and risk perceptions or fear of complications. That's also a good point, Sonali. Validation and patient-clinician shared decision-making are always fundamental to having a better clinical relationship. We can all provide better care through continued education and ensuring that our patients' emotional needs are met. Well said. What's next on our agenda? Well, let's move right on to that patient journey. Let's start off by talking about symptom control, which is likely what patients care about the most. Addressing symptoms is one notable challenge in managing UTI. But what about prevention, Sonali? The patient journey is more complicated when they suffer from recurrent infections. There are many agents used for UTI prevention, and we'll now go into what makes one effective or not. Overall, there's limited evidence on the effectiveness on non-antibiotic prophylactic regimens, which is another indicator of how understudied this patient population really is for how common UTIs are. For patients, the costs associated with these regimens can be prohibitive as well. So it is more important to know what is effective and what is not. What about those with an active diagnosis of recurrent UTI? For patients with an active diagnosis of recurrent UTI, vaginal estrogen has been found to be effective when used to prevent future UTI occurrences in post- and perimenopausal women without a contraindication to estrogen therapy. Methanamine hippurate is another agent that has efficacy in preventing UTIs by acting as an antiseptic which is through formation of a bactericidal formaldehyde that functions to denature bacterial proteins and nucleic acids. It should be important to note that for methanamine, however, there's limited efficacy and safety information for older patients and for those whose renal function is compromised. The available data comes from small non-inferiority trials and a recent one from NHS, mostly retrospective studies. There may be value in some cases for using methanamine as a antibiotic-sparing agent, especially if antibiotics cannot be used due to resistance, intolerance, side effects, but data are limited. Lastly, we've discussed antibiotic prophylaxis in the previous episode. To recap, we know that patients have previously found nitrofuran, sulfonamides, and cephalosporin antibiotics as effective options for prophylaxis, which is corroborated by the AUA guidelines. These are either taken continuously or before or after intercourse for a few months, and I'd recommend referring to the guidelines for updated information. The strongest data surrounds taking as a single dose immediately before or after intercourse. Thank you for reviewing that with us, Sonali. In addition to medications, multiple studies have identified several lifestyle changes that hold efficacy in preventing UTI. These lifestyle changes include choice of contraception, pelvic floor strengthening exercises, and of course, as you had mentioned in another episode, fluid intake. 
Some evidence suggests that training the pelvic floor muscles plays a role in preventing UTI, with one study citing that 83% of their patient population showed improvement over an 18-month period. There's some evidence suggesting that increased water intake is associated with a lower likelihood of experiencing UTI. Sonali, can you address areas where there isn't that much evidence of efficacy. We know that there's studies that discuss things like hygiene practices and voiding control. What does the literature state about those? Absolutely. Hygiene regimen changes and alteration of voiding habits, like you mentioned, but also avoiding hot tub use, tampon use, fall under areas of limited evidence that either require more exploration or simply lack efficacy. And AUA regards these not to play any role in recurrent UTI prevention. From a comprehensive approach, clinicians should weigh the risks and benefits when recommending these agents and give preference to approaches with evidence of efficacy. With regards to increased water intake, a study by Houghton et al. evaluated women with recurrent UTIs who reported less than 1.5 liters per day of fluid intake at baseline, who then increased their water intake by an average of 1.3 liters per day and compared with women who did not increase their water intake. Increased water intake was associated with fewer UTI recurrences compared with no additional fluids group. While this data was found to be statistically significant, the AUA guidelines does make a note that no conclusions can be drawn for women who regularly drink higher quantities of fluids than those reported in the study. Thank you, Sonali. Our final subject for today is the classical definition of clinical cure. The AUA guidelines recommend focusing on resolution of clinical symptoms to determine cure and do not recommend repeating a urine culture at the end of treatment if the patient has clinically improved and symptoms have resolved. Well, that wraps up our mini series of podcasts about uncomplicated UTIs. I want to thank you, especially Sonali, for joining us and for helping us shed light on a crucial topic, one that is too common but not talked about enough. Thank you for having me, Pam. This was so much fun. And fun for me, too. And thank you to you listeners as well. We hope this was an educational series for you all and brought you new insights for practice and approaching your very next patient with UTI.